Please join me in John chapter 15, John chapter 15, for the reading of our passage of study this morning. I'd like to begin with verse 18 and read down through the end of the chapter, John chapter 15, beginning verse 18. In the Lord's farewell discourse to his disciples, we read, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now they both have seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They have hated me without a cause. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Let's pray before we begin our study. Father in heaven, I trust it is with humble hearts and ready spirits that we come before you to hear your word. And I ask that you will help me in the speaking of your word this morning, but that all of us together as your church, your redeemed people, will have ready hearts and minds to hear, to learn, to discern, and to apply the truths that are before us. We are very grateful for the written word that you have given to us that declares and opens up to us your gospel and your righteousness your sanctification. And like the psalmist, we take delight in that word. But also like the psalmist, we recognize there is a world of trouble around us. And we feel the pressure of that opposition against your word, against your truth, against your glory, even against your son. And because we belong to him, we feel that pressure as well. So we ask that your spirit would revive us this morning, energize us, strengthen us, so that as we leave this place filled with the beauty and the value of your word, we are more prepared to face the opposition of darkness around us, and we do so as the light of Christ, desiring that our influence of light, our influence of Christ, will perhaps lead some to salvation. Let the church be strengthened now as we gather together ourselves under the ministry of your word, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In our last study last week of this discourse, Jesus spoke of our new standing as believers, where once we were part of the world, now we belong to Christ. And Jesus had warned the disciples as he warns the church today that the world has hated Christ first. And now that we belong to him, we can expect the world will oppose us. The world will hate us as followers of Christ. 
And as we see in verses 12 to 17 of this passage, this, this description of the vine and abiding in Christ, it's going to find the believer living obediently to the Lord out of our love for Christ and out of our love for one another. We're going to be sacrificing ourselves. No greater love has a man than this, than he give up his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did for us. And he's calling the disciple, now do that for one another. The world will look at that light and they won't approve. We have been raised up to bear much fruit for Christ. We do that and the world will not approve. Therefore, as believers, we're going to expect the hatred from the world because we belong to Christ. And we know that this world hated Christ first. And it is because of Christ that it's going to hate us as well. We turn our attention with that in mind to the oppression or what I think of as the oppression of that hatred. Jesus names persecution here in verses 20 to 21. This is now the disciples' new uh, atmosphere. Because of our position in Christ, we in this world will feel this oppression, this opposition. This hatred is going to be expressed toward the church in a certain way. So this morning we continue in the Lord's instruction as we consider this position that we have in Christ from verses 20 to 21. And it brings with this, this new position brings with this a new oppression that we have faced in a world of hate. This position of oppression not only speaks to our relationship with Jesus Christ regarding his authority and his dignity, which we'll look at in the beginning here this morning, but it also identifies the response that the world's hatred will direct toward us on account of Christ. And then in verse 21, Jesus provides the ultimate reason behind this persecution or behind this oppression, namely that the world does not know God. Jesus calls for his disciples first to remember what he had taught them before about the relationship that he has with his people, that he is the slave or he is the master, and we are the slaves. Jesus brings this analogy again to the forefront in verse 20 and 21, and he calls his disciples, even us today, remember our relationship with Christ. We belong to him. We are his slaves, and he is the master. And it's this point that I would like to begin with in considering our new position in Christ, this new oppression that we are going to feel from the world, having been taken out of the world, that hates the Savior, and where we are now joined with Christ and joined in being hated by this world. So we're going to consider first the greatness of the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. In this first part of verse 20, Jesus again is reminding his disciples of what he had said to them back in chapter 13. And if you go back to chapter 13, you remember the context where Jesus said, I am the Master, you are the slaves. That followed the washing of the disciples' feet, remember. And Jesus said, I am setting an example for you to follow. And that washing of the feet would not, was not primarily about cleaning dirty feet. But Jesus was setting a picture before them that the disciples would see in just a few hours as Jesus would be nailed to the cross because he humbled himself by taking on humanity, stepping out of his glory of heaven, setting aside the glories of heaven that belong to him rightfully, he took on humanity for us. 
He lived among us. And then he was willing to be nailed to a cross to bear the filth of our burdens that we might be cleansed. So that picture of washing the disciples' feet was a picture of the humility of the Savior that he was willing to do this for us. And Jesus said, now I being the master and you being the slave, I want you to do the same thing for one another. It is interesting in verse 20, Jesus said, remember the word that I spoke to you before. I'm going to say it again to you now. The slave is not greater than the master. The master is the greater one. So again, Jesus is using that picture to remind the church to bring to the forefront of our minds his greatness, his glory. And I want to submit to you that the greatness of the master is not only in just his authority to share these things with his people, but it's a picture of his dignity the greater majesty of the master, that he would endure persecution on our behalf. That the Son of God would stoop to this level, not only to wash our feet or to cleanse us from our sin, but he would take the hostility and the hatred of the world that he might accomplish that redemption. In chapter 15 and verse 20, Jesus calls on his men to recall what he had taught them before that he is the master and we are the slaves. Now, go back to verse 15. And it's interesting, and it is not a conflict here, but it's interesting that Jesus would say, I'm no longer calling you slaves. I'm going to call you friend. That is not to suggest we are not the slaves of Christ because we are. It is not to suggest that Jesus is our Lord and master because he is. But Jesus is telling us in verse 15 that as master and us as his slaves, we're more than that. This is more than a dictatorship. He is more than a heartless ruler that cares not for the people. But he said, I call you friends, even though you are my slaves. Why? Because I'm going to disclose everything to you that the Father has given me to declare to you. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in verse 20. As the master... He is treating the slave as friends by disclosing to us what we need to know. He's disclosing to us what the Father has given to him to tell us and to teach us. And it is evident here in verse 20 that he's teaching us the importance of facing persecution when we stand for his name. And we endure this kind of suffering where his authority and his dignity over us is well understood. I want you to remember, I am the master, you are the slave. A slave is not greater than his master. In other words, he is the greater one. And yet he faced persecution for us because the world hated him. It tormented him. And because we are his, the world will also persecute us. And if somehow you and I were to escape the hatred of the world, it would suggest in some way that we are of greater importance than God's Son. And we aren't. So what Jesus is saying, because of my greater dignity and honor, you can expect to be persecuted. And the value of this statement is very significant to us as we endure the hardships of our faith in this world. As verse 18 has informed us, we do not experience the world's hatred 
because we're being unjustly treated by them or because the world is not recognizing our stellar virtues, our productivity. We don't experience the world's hatred because of our rich character and that they just don't see how wonderful we are as Christian people. We experience hatred. Why? Because they, the world, hates Jesus Christ and we belong to him. It's about his majesty. It's about his perfections and holiness. And when we suffer for our faith in Christ, it again is not about our superior worth that is being rejected by the world. It is about the master and the world's disdain for him. We're merely his slaves, and we follow in his footsteps, and we do so as we suffer for him. And therefore, we are guarded from self-pity or from crying out to God during dark and difficult times. Why me, Lord? We can very often experience the hard things of this life and give way to thinking, I deserve better than this, or I didn't deserve this kind of treatment. Or we might question the wisdom and character of God himself. God, you surely wouldn't allow this kind of bad stuff to happen to your people. At times, I think opposition and trouble from others can even cause us to question our salvation. When in fact, persecution and difficulty from others on account of my walk of faith with Christ should confirm that I belong to him based on the words before us. If you are persecuted for the name of Christ, you can be assured you belong to him. But I think perhaps even more common a response from Christians when we face trouble and opposition is for believers to compromise with the world, to avoid the rejection and the abuse of the world, a world that hates Christ. And in fact, I think Peter made that mistake in just a few hours from this discourse, didn't he? When three times he denied that he belonged to Christ, why did he do so? He took the easier course. He compromised. It was much easier to say, no, I don't know this Jesus. No, I don't belong to this Jesus. Than face the rejection and hatred of the world. Yet later, he, Peter, came to understand the greater dignity of Jesus Christ from the words that were here spoken to him in the upper room and in this discourse. In Acts chapter 5, after Peter and the apostles were thrown into jail, later flogged, being ordered by the Jewish council, you're no longer to speak in the name of Christ. Dr. Luke went on to write of the apostles leaving that prison. In verse 41 of Acts 5, he writes, So they went out on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered, what? Worthy to suffer shame for his name. Worthy to suffer for his name. Why? Because Christ is greater and his name is to be held in high dignity and honor. To suffer for his name from a world that hates him, a world of darkness that hates the light. Peter came to realize, though once he failed in shame and denied Christ, now being beaten for Christ, thrown in prison. He's counting himself worthy to suffer shame for his name. Why? Because now he stood for that name. It is the master-slave relationship that we have with the Savior that gives us this boldness, I believe, to endure hardship and suffering for his name. Paul referred to his own persecution 
as fellowship that he had with Christ's suffering in Philippians chapter 3. Fellowship that he had with Christ's suffering. In other words, the believer is so bonded with the Savior that our suffering for his namesake is joined with the suffering of Christ. I'm suffering along with him now. We're bonded with the Master as we endure the hatred of the world for his glory and the advancement of his kingdom. In Galatians 6 and verse 17, Paul writes that the scars on his body being beaten in persecution for Christ that he endured, he called them brand marks of Jesus. It's like he's been tattooed for Christ, and I'm not advocating tattooing here. He's being stamped that I belong to Christ, and he has the scars to show for it because he proclaimed the master's good name. In Philippians chapter 1, and I'd like you to turn there with me, Philippians chapter 1. And verse 29, Paul encourages the Philippians in their suffering by telling them that they had been granted the privilege to suffer for Christ's sake. Look at verse 27 to begin with, down through verse 29. Paul writes to the Philippian church, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Do you catch the context of no compromise here? Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Do you see those two principles, two doctrines there, if you will, held side by side? It has been granted you to be saved. We learned that from John chapter 6. No one comes to the Son unless it has been granted to you by the Father. Our very salvation is a gift that has been granted to us by God. And look what parallels that. It is also not only salvation that has been granted it's been granted to you to suffer for the sake of the Lord's name. This is about his majesty and his dignity. Consider what many of these early Christians had to experience when they came to faith in Christ. Many of them were drugged before the courts, and it was demanded of them, you renounce Jesus as Lord, and you declare Caesar is Lord. And if they did not, they were thrown in prison, or worse, they were killed. They had to suffer death. Paul is telling these believers that God has granted to them the privilege and honor of suffering for the name of God's Son. And it is very likely that some of these young, immature believers in Philippi chose to compromise with the world rather than suffer the heavy penalty of persecution for their faith. And it's here that we recognize the greater dignity and honor of our master whom we're going to be persecuted for. I'm going to bring up on the board a statement by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones in writing on Philippians chapter 1 and those three verses that we just read. He writes, Paul tells us that if we are to be Christians worthy of the name, the name of Christ, and if the choice should ever come, we must stand for this. If it is a choice between our allegiance to Christ 
and our work, our position, or job, or anything else, there must be no hesitation. If it is a question of standing for this, in other words, Christ's name, or going to prison, then I'm to go to prison. If it's a matter of standing four square to this and being loyal to it, or even giving up my life, I must gladly die for him. What Lloyd-Jones is saying is there's no compromise here. Not for the sake of getting out of trouble or oppression or persecution. We are never to compromise with our faith. It is often said that water will always follow the easiest path, right? And we know that to be true. It's a basic principle. Gravity takes it where it must go. Electricity does the same thing. And we noted this just in our last storm where a number of trees came down on power lines. We had one right in front of our house. I came home during that storm, and there was a tree leaning against the power line. And there was smoke coming out of where that tree was touching the power line, and there was this orange glow. So we had to call the power department, or the PSE and let them know this was happening. But you know, the moisture in the bark of that tree was taking that conduit right from the line to ground. And I've had the privilege of experiencing that when I've been working with some wires at time, and I was foolish enough not to turn off the breaker. Many of you have. Christians are never to follow the easiest course. We are not to be like water or electricity. There is opposition. There is persecution. That's why Jesus is now telling his disciples as he sends them out into the world, you will be hated. And that hatred will be experienced in persecution. They persecuted me. They're going to persecute you too. A slave is never greater than his master. This is about the Lord's authority, his majesty, and his dignity. And we can never compromise when it comes to our walk of faith and our devotion to him. From the words of Jesus here in John 15, every believer must view persecution for Christ from the position of the slave who would suffer and even die for the dignity of our Lord and Master. And we must do so without compromising, knowing his greatness, knowing his authority, knowing his majesty. And if he was willing to endure persecution for our sake, how much more should we be willing to do that for the sake of one that is so much greater than we are? And second, going back to verse 21 in this discourse in John 15, Jesus speaks about the suffering for his name. Look at verse 20. He continues by saying, All these things they will do to you for my name's sake. That's actually in verse 21. That's why I'm pausing here. I, my notes are wrong. All these things, persecution, the world that hates will do these things to you for my name's sake. What does that tell you about the believer? He's walking according to the name of Christ. He's not living in compromise. He's not rebelling against the ways of the Lord but he's actually abiding in Christ as Jesus is described with the analogy of the vine. This is a believer that is attached to Christ, abiding in Christ, abiding in the love of Christ, bearing fruit for Christ, out of love for Christ, abiding in the words of Christ. 
So the world looking on is going to bring this persecution against us when we're walking for the name and the glory of Christ. So it is first to be understood that the persecution that Jesus speaks of here is that which the believer will experience for the Lord's namesake. This identifies the world expressing its hatred towards us because we are walking in devotion to the person of Christ. The idea here is that we are living before the world in a way that honors Christ, and in the language of John 15, we are abiding in Christ. This means that our witness, our words, our walk of faith are those of a true disciple or follower of Christ. And I say that because even as believers, we can get the world pretty annoyed at us and hate us for doing what is foolish and even sinful. This is certainly not what Jesus had in mind when he spoke of suffering for his namesake. He's calling the believer to abide in him, abide in his love, obey his commandments, bear fruit for his father's glory, to love him and to love others sacrificially. Our words and our lives are to bring honor and glory to his name, meaning that our character should be aligned with the character of Christ. If we happen to be suffering now, or even being ill-treated by the world, or perhaps even other Christians, it is very important that we examine our own lives and make sure we're being tormented for the glory of Christ, and not just because we're being stupid, or foolish, or sinful, or reckless with our walk of faith. We can look back and see some of the, the, the disaster that is around us in our families, our communities, our work. And we can quickly say, oh, we're being treated poorly here, unjustly. Well, maybe it is for our own foolishness that we're reaping that kind of consequence. What Jesus is speaking of here is a hatred that the world has for the light, the light of Christ. And when we walk in that light, we can be assured the world is going to hate us too. And that hatred will be expressed in persecution. So first, we must acknowledge that what Jesus is talking about here is hatred and persecution for the believer walking according to the character or the name of Christ. Second, we are to understand that persecution against us will be a broad display of the world's hatred, even as it was for Jesus. And I sp suspect that when we think of the word persecution, we're thinking of things like Christians being thrown into Colosseums and torn apart by wild beasts or Christians that have been burned at the stake, or thrown in prison, physical torture, beatings, the killing of believers. And that certainly is intense persecution. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he identified some of the persecutions in that regard, physical persecution that he experienced. He said, I've been far more imprisoned than others, beaten times without number, he said, in danger of death often. Five times he's received 39 floggings from the Jews. Five times. Three times beaten with rods and once he was stoned. I think when we think of persecution, it is easy to think on those terms of the physical abuse that the world can level against us for our Christian faith. Yet, I want us to consider Jesus saying to these disciples at this moment, they persecuted me. Until the arrest of Christ, 
the only kind of persecution that Scripture tells us about is non-physical. There were those times when the religious rulers conspired together to seize Jesus, but to this point, he had always escaped, at least up until the Lamb of God was sacrificed on the cross. Prior to Calvary, the persecution leveled against Christ was unbelief, rejection, mockery, slander, false testimonies, and a failure to worship the Son of God as he deserved. It was only when Christ was arrested that the world's hatred escalated to physical torture and murder. To be sure, the early church, as well as Christians down through the centuries, have experienced untold physical torment for their faith, and we hear about it going on even today in other parts of the world. We haven't known too much of that in this nation. For the most part, believers in this country have not seen that kind of persecution, though many of us believe it is coming. What must also be clearly understood is that much of our persecution will be more of a social nature. Physical persecution may come for us in this nation, but most of what we have endured for the name of Christ has been a form of social persecution. And Peter wrote to this of the suffering believers in his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, if you can go there with me. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. Peter's addressing the many sinful ways that believers used to live before the world and before Christ came into our lives. I mean, think about, especially those of us that were saved, those here today that were saved as adults. You can look back and see how you lived before. And even sometimes Christians have dabbled in the things of the world. And Peter's warning these believers, don't go back to where you once were. But then he goes on in verse 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, in all this, they, the world, are surprised that you don't run with them any longer in the excesses of dissipation or recklessness or unsavedness or carelessness with Christian living. And they, what? Malign you for it. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The world will be judged, Peter is saying. But don't go back to that kind of reckless living. I know that they're beckoning you to. They're inviting you to join with them in that excessive living, that unsavedness, that reckless and careless living. And when you don't go with them, they're going to malign you. In chapter 3, Peter writes of Christ being reviled. Paul writes of being falsely accused. And his apostolic gift in ministry was rejected, especially by the Corinthian church. But it's Matthew chapter 5 that carries this further, and I'd like you to see this as well from Christ's Sermon on the Mount, excuse me, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, Jesus preached these words, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The point that we may draw from these verses is that persecution is not merely physical torment. Historically, the church has suffered 
under a broad range of persecutions. And therefore, like other Christians, for the sake of Christ's good name, we're going to be ridiculed and slandered. Our reputations can be maligned. Perhaps we're going to be forced into poverty or we're going to feel the financial persecution from the world on account of our faith. Our properties may be confiscated. Or we may be fined sums of money by the court because we don't go along with their demands. Friends may reject us. Our family may reject us. And very often we can find ourselves standing alone against the hostilities and the mockery of the world, even as Jesus had. He was persecuted in this way. And Jesus said, if you find yourself under these kinds of attacks, rejoice and be glad, for your reward from the Lord is great. And you have joined the honorable company of those Old Testament prophets that faithfully proclaimed the word of the Lord, and they were slandered for it and maligned for it and persecuted. What is certain for all true believers is that we will be hated by this world as Christ was hated. And because the world persecuted him, they will most certainly persecute us as well. Why? Because the world in darkness hates the light who is Christ. And so long as we walk in the Savior's light, the world will hate us too. So Jesus said, expect opposition, expect oppression, expect to be persecuted. This is the reality of our new position in Christ. This is the response of the world to our abiding in Christ where we love him, we obey his commands, and we bear fruit for his kingdom. And this brings us back to John 15, picking up in verse 21, where Jesus said, this is the reason why. It is the unknowing of the world. This is a world that does not know God. Verse 21, the second part of the verse because they do not know the one who sent me. Jesus gets right to the heart here of the world's hatred in verse 21. It is because the world does not know God. The world does not know the one who sent Jesus Christ to this world. And once again, it is important to see that those who did not know God, the ones that were chiefly in the crosshairs of the Lord's words, were the religious Jews of his day. These are the ones that claim to know God, to be faithful to God, to be faithful to the law of God, the, that Moses gave this law by God's command to his people. They kept that law. Jesus was the outsider. He was the opposer here. When Jesus speaks about these ones that did not know God, he is primarily speaking about the religious men of his day, the Jews that accused, the Jews that rejected, the Jews that hated him and who tormented him for three and a half years in his ministry. Now, several reasons are given for why the world, even the world of religion, does not know God. Number one, it is the nature of the Son that is being rejected. We see that in verse 21 and verse 23. The nature of the Son is rejected. If any do not believe that God sent Jesus to this world, then they don't know the God of the Bible. They don't know the God of creation. Jesus is clearly referring here to his union with God the Father of his divine origin in heaven from which he was sent by the Father. The divine nature of God's Son is implied here and this has been the subject of unity between Father and Son that John has continually advanced in this gospel. The Jewish haters of Christ 
claimed to know God. They devoted themselves to religious activities ordained by God. The religion of the Jews was not one of a, of a cultish religion of idol worship, remember, that would be practiced by the pagan nations. The Jews claimed to hold the law of Moses given by God. Yet remember what Jesus declared of these religious rulers in John 8. Your father is not God. Your father is the devil because they followed the deceptions and the lies and the denial of truth that came from Satan. And in John chapter 8 and verse 42, Jesus goes on to say, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. What Jesus is declaring is his unity, his equality with God the Father. And these Jews denied that to the Son. And therefore, Jesus can say they don't know God. Here in John 15, Jesus tells his people that those who hate him actually hate God. They don't know God. They hate God. That's what verse 23 says. He who hates me hates my father also. Imagine saying that to a bunch of religious men like these Jewish priests and scribes and Pharisees. You don't know God. You're a hater of God. Imagine how they bristled at that. He's not speaking directly here of the atheist, though the atheist is included. Jesus was speaking directly about the religious rulers of his day and any other person that has rejected him as the son of God. Any who do not love Christ, do not believe that he came from God, has no relationship with God, no matter how religious they may appear. To hate the Son is to hate God himself. And second, they didn't know God because the word of the Son is being rejected here. The word of Christ was rejected. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Clearly, Jesus does not mean by these words that before he came to this earth, these men weren't actual sinners. Because passages like Romans chapter 3 remind us that Jew and Gentile alike are unable to do any good at all. We're incapable of any righteousness. There are none that seek after God. And the Apostle Paul got that doctrine of human depravity right out of the Old Testament scriptures. Much of Romans 3 is a quote of Psalm 14. So Jesus is not saying that man was without sin until he came and spoke to them. But in the context of this discourse, he is saying that when he came to this world proclaiming the only hope of salvation and the world rejected his word, they exposed the sin of rejecting the Savior that was sent by God. That's the context. And until Jesus came and preached... These men had not committed the sin of rejecting him as Messiah. But the moment he spoke to them and they rejected his word, they were committing the sin of rejecting the Messiah that God had sent. Just as verse 21 declares, Jesus came preaching the gospel of his atonement. Reject that gospel word and men are without excuse for their sin. Man has no excuse for rejecting the Savior sent by God. For any to hate the Son only means that they hate the Father who sent his Son, as verse 23 testifies. So there was a rejection of the nature 
of God's son. There is a rejection of the word or the message, the preaching of God's son. But Jesus goes on, verse 24, to say they also rejected my works. And the works here clearly is a, gives the attention to the signs and the miracles and the wonders performed by Christ that show the power of his divine nature and glory. It is the miraculous works of Christ that testified that he came from God the Father, that God truly sent him. Had the Jews not heard the words of Christ or seen his miraculous works, they would not have rejected him as God's Messiah because they would not have heard from Jesus that he was claiming to be Messiah. You're not going to reject somebody as Messiah if they're not claiming to be Messiah. But Jesus came preaching, I am the one. That atonement and salvation will only be found in him. He came preaching faith and repentance in his finished work. And he demonstrated that message, that it came from God, by exhibiting the very power and the miracles of God himself. And therefore, Jesus came clearly proclaiming and, and demonstrating his divine nature. And therefore, because they, the world, heard and saw, yet rejected they were guilty of the sin of hatred against the Son. Jesus then repeats in verse 24 that where he is hated by men, so also is God hated. And it's just as true for us when we preach Christ. When the world hears us preach Christ, if they reject him, they are all the more guilty than those who have never heard. Of all sins that these religious men could have committed against God, the rejection of God's Son would be the most severe in nature. Now, there are many passages, and I know many of you know this, but there are many passages in God's Word that teach that there will be greater and lesser degrees of punishment for sins of greater or lesser degree of severity in the eyes of God. One such passage you can go to and refer from Matthew chapter 11 finds Jesus pronouncing judgment against several Galilean cities in which he preached and performed miracles before them. But they did not repent and they did not believe. Cities like Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And in condemning those Galilean cities in which Christ preached and performed miracles, he said it's going to be more tolerable in the day of judgment than it will be for Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon were Gentile pagan cities that were known for their immorality and godlessness, their violence, their corruption. And as vile and corrupt as they were, Jesus said if they had seen and heard what the Galilean cities had, they would have repented long ago. The Galilean cities that Jesus ministered in had the privilege of hearing the gospel from God's Son. They witnessed the power in the miracles that he performed. Yet they were indifferent to the call of repentance. And it's noteworthy that in those Galilean cities, there was not a lot of open hostility or aggression against Jesus as Jesus experienced in Jerusalem. Rather, those Galileans just seemed to ignore him. They were unmoved by the call of faith. They did not repent as Jesus has called all men to do. And yet Jesus said in those three cities that were indifferent and didn't really care to repent, 
the judgment is going to be much more severe against them than even against Tyre and Sidon, who are corrupt and vile cities. And it's from passages like this that we know that there are going to be degrees of punishment on the day of judgment based on the severity of the sins committed. It is also passages like this that teach us that the most severe of sins is the rejection of God's Son. And the Jewish rulers went well beyond simply being indifferent or ignoring the words of Christ. They turned against him in hostility. Capernaum may have turned its back on Jesus, but the Jews of Jerusalem, they nailed him to a cross. And they took pleasure in his murder. And therefore, Jesus said, you have no excuse. There's nothing you can bring on judgment day before the throne as your defense. They hated Christ. And therefore, they hated the Father as well. And in verse 25, Jesus adds that all of this fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies like we find in Psalm 35 or Psalm 69. These Jews hated Jesus without a cause. They're just fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. They hated him without a cause. He gave them every reason to embrace him as the son, being God by nature, giving the message that God had given to Christ to preach to this world, demonstrating the works of his divine nature. So they hate him without any reason, without any cause. They're claiming to be opposing Jesus for the honor of God, but in fact, all they did was deny all the evidences and proofs that God the Father gave to his Son in his divine nature and purpose. And because the world rejected Jesus without cause, we can expect persecution and hatred from all who reject Jesus Christ as the Son of God. This all bears down on our gospel ministry, doesn't it? It tells us what we can expect from many in the world. It is God's Son that we're attached to. It's His Son in whom we abide. It's the Word of God's Son that is to abide in us. We abide in His love. And in this cause, it is for this cause that the world hates us. This is a world that does not know God, who sent Jesus to this world to be the Savior. God sent Jesus. But the world does not know that God if they do not know that Savior. And finally, as we continue in our study and ending this chapter, verse 26 and verse 27, we see the disciples' new helper. Our final consideration this morning is the Holy Spirit. When the helper comes, Jesus said, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. Now clearly the words of Jesus Christ in verses 18 to 25, those are hard words to take. Because Jesus is telling his disciples, this world is not going to be comfortable for you. He's telling us the same thing. This world is not going to be pleasant for us. But Jesus ends that troubling news with a strongly affirming reality of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus said back in chapter 14, the Holy Spirit is going to be sent by Christ to be our helper, the church's helper. He's the spirit of truth who comes from God to give testimony to the truth of Jesus Christ, a truth that we are preaching. 
because Jesus sends him to believers as their helper, we know that our testimony of the Savior, as we share Christ with others, it's going to be the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And it gives us courage. It gives us confidence, knowing we're in a world of hatred, a world of darkness, a world that's going to persecute us, that's going to oppress us. What will encourage us? We have the Spirit of Christ to help us. And we recognize in this, we have no ability to save anyone. We have no ability to convince anyone of the truth of Christ such that their depraved heart is turned to be a believing heart. We can't do that. So we rest upon the work of the Spirit who can. It has to be a work of the Spirit of truth who testifies through us of Jesus Christ. And it's to be noted here that Jesus validates his apostles here at the end of verse 27, affirming that they had been with him from the beginning. Well, what's implied by that? Why does he bring that up? These disciples had witnessed all that Jesus did and taught in his ministry years. And this is why when Judas was to be replaced, they had to find another one of the disciples that had been with Christ from the beginning and had witnessed his miracles, had heard him preach, And so they chose Matthias to replace Judas. And these apostles would be the foundation of the church age to come. Why? Because they had received the witness of Christ himself. And they gave to the church the written word of Christ. Peter, in his second epistle, spoke to the testimony that was given to the apostles based on what they had seen when they walked with Jesus for those three and a half years. Look with me at 2 Peter chapter 1. And I want to close kind of our study here with these words. But remember, Peter and the apostles, they're the ones that saw the miracles of Christ. They were chosen by Christ to bear fruit for Christ. They heard him preach. They witnessed his power. Many of them went up onto the mountain. And saw Christ transfigured. And Peter references that here. In other words, they witnessed the divine nature of Christ. They heard his words preached. They witnessed his miracles. And they recognized this is the Son of God. This is what Peter writes, beginning in verse 16, 2 Peter chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, such as utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, quoting, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him, with Christ on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns, And the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It's in these words that I believe Jesus, or Peter is echoing what Christ said in John 15. You men were with me from the beginning, and you now will be the foundation for the church. You're going to give to the church the written word of everything you've come to know. The spirit of truth has revealed these things to you. You're going to put them into print. 
And this gives to the church confidence that we have before us the word of Christ. Because Jesus has just affirmed that to us in John 15. These are the ones that were with him from the beginning. And while our world has rejected Christ, they have despised his word and his works, we have the assurance that Jesus has affirmed for the church age the ministry of the apostles who have given to us the written word of Christ. Those men were with Jesus from the beginning. And here in verse 26 and 27 of John 15, Jesus is letting us know that the spirit of truth came from God to give testimony to his son. And it's through the apostles that we have received this testimony of truth. The spirit also works in us to make the Savior known as we live in obedience to his will, as we bear fruit for his name, and as we proclaim his good name before the world. Now, just summarizing a couple of things that I believe are helpful to us from this text. Number one, I believe it is helpful to know that we will be persecuted as was our master. It is helpful for the believer to know that we will be persecuted as was our master. We think of his greater authority and dignity here. When persecuted, remember that the Lord also experienced this and he was far greater than we are. It prepares us in advance so that we don't retreat when taken by surprise by the world's hostility. We shouldn't be taken by surprise. We look to Christ. We see his persecution. We equip ourselves with his truth to stand for his namesake in the hour of suffering. That's what Paul was writing to the church in Philippi. Stand together. Stand together in the truth. It also teaches us that our Savior is honored as we stand for his dignity against the oppression of a world that hates. The world does not know him, but we do. We honor the Savior as we stand in the midst of persecution. Second, I believe it is helpful to know that there is hope even in hostility and hatred. There is hope even in hostility and hatred. A passage that I deliberately glossed over just a little bit is found in verse 20. At the end of the verse, Jesus said, If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Jesus had been describing a world of hate, a world that will persecute. But Jesus is recognizing from out of that world, there were a few that kept his word. They will keep yours also. In other words, as we preach Christ, the world at large is not going to embrace him, but a few will. This encourages us. It tells us there is hope in the midst of hatred, in the midst of oppression and persecution. In the preaching of Christ, he will have his way. He will save some. So this encourages us to keep on in the midst of oppression. The world may treat us in hostility, but nothing is lost with the master. He will still save some, and he will do so through our witness and our walk of faith. And three, it is helpful to know that the spirit of truth is at work in our suffering. It helps us to know that the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, our helper, is at work in our suffering. He's not only the believer's helper dwelling within us, but he has provided for us, you and I, 
a foundation of truth in the apostles before us. The Spirit of Christ empowers us to testify for the Savior. He came from the Father. He indwells the believer to testify to his Son. But we're not preaching some unknown or undiscovered revelations from within ourselves. What we're preaching is the Word of Christ. It's before us in the written Word. We have the Word of Jesus here. As John 15 supports, it affirms this for us, that there were those who were with Him from the beginning, and they have given to the church the prophetic Word that is a more sure foundation of truth for us. We can preach His Word knowing it's His Spirit of truth that through the Word is giving testimony to Jesus Christ. And as Peter wrote in that second epistle, we do well to pay attention to the written word as a shining light in a dark place. We have confidence in, in the word of Christ. Father in heaven, as we hear the words of your son speaking what are some dark and difficult words to the church, things that we must face in this world, there is great joy in knowing we stand on solid ground. As we stand firm in our faith, our walk of faith and devotion to your son's good name, we are honoring him. We also recognize that by our witness and our testimony, some are going to be drawn to Christ. Not all, not many, but a few. And Father, we are grateful that you give us confidence in the written word before us, given by men that walked with you, that knew you for who you were, that saw your miracles and give a solid testimony to the church in the written word. And we rest upon that word this morning as that which we are to now proclaim, not only to the world, but we proclaim it to the church as well. Let us be found faithful to Christ your Son and to you the Father that sent him. In Christ we pray, amen. Mm -hmm.